I'm going to uh, ask you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. <clears throat> I wanted to read something to you about Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus Christ himself is the final exegesis of all scripture. Of all truth and of the person of God. He is all that we need to know about God. And he is all that we need to know about man. He is the appointed heir of all things. He is the final and all-inclusive word of the Father. Begotten, not made. Incarnate, but not incapacitated. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is the brightness of the Father's glory. But not excelling the Father. And not more than the Spirit. He is the express image of the person of God. He upholds all things by the word of his power. By himself alone, he purged our sins. He is transcendent over all things created. All things that were, that are, or that ever shall be. For he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is God. And his throne is everlasting. He is crowned with glory and honor. Jesus one with God and in the form of God. Possessing the fullness of the attributes which make God God. Did not think this equality with God was a thing to be eagerly grasped after. But stripped himself of all privileges and rightful dignity. So as to assume the guise of a servant or a slave. And that he became like men and was born a human being. And after that he appeared in human form. He abased and humbled himself still further. And carried his obedience to the extreme of death. Even the death of the cross. All the exhaustible supplies of God are available to the man. Who is available to all of the inexhaustible supplies of God. And Jesus Christ is that man, the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is man in perfection, God in humility. He was in the beginning, God. He is now God. He will forevermore be God. He was man in the past. He is now man. He shall forevermore be man. He is no more than his father, he is no less than the Holy Spirit. Though incarnate as man, he is eternally God, equal, coexisting with the Father and with the Spirit from eternity past. He was perfect in a fallen world. He was pure in an impure world. He was meek in a harsh and quarrelsome world. He was last when everybody else wanted to be first. He served when everyone else wanted to be served. He sought only God's will when everyone else was seeking their own will. He laid his life down when everyone else was trying to save theirs. God could look upon this Jesus and above all men and only that one man could God see his perfect reflection. He was God walking among men. He was the man Acting like God in the midst of men who would act like the devil. 
Here is a man who is equal with the father as pertaining to his substance, his eternity, his love, his power, his grace, his goodness, and in all other attributes of deity. But he was despised and rejected of men. And the world cast him off. And men are embarrassed of him. Roman legions, Jewish priests, men and women. Took part in the most horrific scandal and abominations. That will forever mark our corruption and God's grace. They would scar, wound and crucify God's manifestation of love. They would slander him with titles as to make his soul to suffer. Illegitimate, a devil, a blasphemer, a glutton, a wine-bibber, a troublemaker, a worthless man, a rebel, a son of Belial, the king of thieves, the friend of sinners. His glory was thus in all things turned into shame by the sons of men. But wait... For heaven has taken him up. He which this world despises, heaven adores. What man has rejected, the Father has loved. The Father has turned his shame into glory. He has raised his beloved Son from the dead and magnified his wounds as the payment for his murderer's sins. Heaven honors him. Angels adore him. The church worships him. His name is above every name, and to him every knee will bow. And Mr. Pharisee, Mr. Pilate, Mr. Atheist, he shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of his government there shall be no end. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the Advocate. The Lamb of God, the Shepherd and the Bishop of Souls, the Judge, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, the Head of the Church, the Faithful and the True Witness, the Rock of our Salvation, the High Priest, the Door, the Living Water, the Bread of Life, the Rose of Sharon, the Alpha and the Omega, the True Vine, the Messiah, the Teacher, the Holy One, the Beloved, the Branch, the carpenter, the good shepherd, the light of the world, the image of the invisible God, the word, the chief cornerstone, the savior, the servant, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the I am, the only begotten of the father, Emmanuel, God with us. He is the prophet, the redeemer, the anchor, the bright and the morning star. He is the way and the truth and the life. He is Jesus the Christ, the beloved Son of God. He is the Lamb who is worthy. He is the glory of the living God. Hallelujah. Do not worship a Jesus any less than that. But as much as we could say about him, our our words fall infinitely short to even begin to grasp the measure of his glory and of his person, but how we adore Jesus Christ. And the author of Hebrews certainly adored him. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, But we see Jesus, 
who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. How do you not love Jesus when he tasted death for you? How, by the grace of God, he was able to do it. That God was able to sum up all of our sins and our rebellions and his wrath and place that upon his beloved son who would endure it and he would bear it so that we would never have to. It gets beautiful. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory. To make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For this was the desire of the father. That the father would send the son into the earth. In the likeness of humanity. That by the grace of God his father. He would taste death for every man. For this purpose. That he might bring to the father many sons. What an affection and a love and a desire from the heavenly father who longs to adopt you, all of you in this room, into his very own family, not as servants or as slaves, but as sons and daughters with full and entire rights that sons and daughters would be given. And if Jesus hadn't have said it, I do not believe we would have been able to believe it. But Jesus said, I want them to be with me, with you, so that they might behold the glory that I shared with you before the foundations of the earth. For truly, Father, you love them as you loved me. That is an amazing thing. And so Jesus came and suffered by the will of the Father In order that through his suffering, he could bring to the father many sons and daughters. Don't you want to go? Don't you want to be the son and the daughter of God through the merits of Christ? For both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all one. For which cause? And this is so beautiful. Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother. Wow. That's worth underlining in your Bible. That's worth uttering a testimony of praise to Jesus. Thank you for not being ashamed of me. How how many of you are ashamed of Jesus? How many of you are ashamed to declare Jesus publicly to this world? How many of you are ashamed to worship or praise Jesus publicly with affection, even in the house of God? But Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother. What a brother is ours. What a liberator is Jesus Christ. What a one who sets men free and brings us into the glorious hope of being like him. And it goes on to say that Jesus will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the church while I sing praise to you. That's what Jesus does. Isn't that amazing? People that gather together in the middle of the church to give praise to God. You know what you're doing? You're acting like Jesus. Right? Read it again. It's beautiful. Verse 11. For both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all one. For which this cause he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will declare your name unto my brothers in the midst of the church. Will I sing praise unto thee? 
Isn't it wonderful to have Jesus so much in our life that we begin to act like Jesus? Isn't that wonderful? It's not people who are trying to behave like Jesus. It's just Jesus acting like Jesus in our lives. That is wonderful. For Jesus loves to stand in the midst of the church and sing praises to his Father. Wow. And when he gets to do it through us, it's just all the better. All the more. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God has given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Aren't you glad Jesus not only destroyed death, he destroyed the devil. And delivered them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Aren't you glad you didn't have to fear COVID? Aren't you glad you didn't have to fear dying? As I've said before and I've heard others say, don't threaten me with heaven. Ah, don't threat, don't make that threat to somebody who knows they're going there. You know, it is a wonderful thing to know that our lives are in the hands of God. He's numbered our days. There's no doctor that can make you live a day longer. You might, through health reasons, can live better. But thank the Lord, God knows the number of our days. We don't have to fear death. Jesus destroyed it. Just live your life for Jesus Christ. Don't fear men. Don't fear government. Don't fear Marxism. Don't fear political activism. There's no power like the power of Christ who lives in you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In Hebrews 11, they celebrated people of faith from the Old Testament who didn't have the indwelling Christ and turned armies to flight and raised their loved ones back from the dead. Well, now this Jesus lives in us. They should fear us. We should not fear them. Verily, he took on him Not the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. That's what Jesus is to you and I. He is our high priest, and he is there representing us before the Father with his one and only and forever accepted sacrifice of himself, where through his blood, which proclaims better things than that of Abel, declares our freedom and our forgiveness and our reconciliation with the Father. Praise God. We have one like Jesus, who is our high priest. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to secure them That are tempted. He is able to relieve those that are tempted. He is able to give rest to those that are tempted. Such is a wonderful brother, Jesus our Lord. He is our brother. I mean, it seems sometimes sacrilegious to say that, but he has declared himself such. And it's wonderful to note that he is not ashamed of us. We're ashamed of ourselves. But he's not ashamed of us, and he celebrates us, and he celebrates that he's our redeemer, 
and our reconciler. He rejoices in the fact that the father was able to send him into the world so that he could bring many sons and daughters to God. Praise the Lord. And we, the sons and daughters of adoption, will stand before God just as righteous and holy and just as this Jesus Christ Because it's imputed to you. It's not earned. But you get this when you believe in God's Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, how beautiful, how beautiful. So I want to focus upon this for just a moment. Jesus is our brother who is not ashamed of us. This is wonderful. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He shall save his people from their sins. He shall save his people from their sins. I just want to make a comment personally on that phrase of Scripture. His people are sinners. Every sinner, say amen. His people are sinners. And he is the Savior of his peoples and their sin. That means that his people do not continue to be sinners. But they are saved and they are delivered. Spurgeon goes on to say, notice the very gracious but startling fact that our Lord's connection with his people lies in the direction of their sins. The first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but my badness. Not my merit, but my misery. Not my standing, but my falling. Not my riches, but my need. He comes to visit his people, but he doesn't come to admire their beauty. But he comes to remove their deformities. He does not come to reward their virtues. He comes to forgive their sins. I want to be his people. I want to be saved from sin. He is famous for the sinners that he saves. The transgressions he forgives, the messes he clears up, the relationships he heals, and the fullness of life he pours into wretched, empty hearts who can now enjoy life. This is Jesus, and I love what Spurgeon says about him. I think it's very interesting when the book of Hebrews says that he is not ashamed to call us brothers because it is, it's kind of, to me, funny Now, when Jesus was on earth, the religious leaders in that day tried to hurt him with accusations. They tried to belittle him with their remarks. Because the Pharisees and the religious leaders took pride in their holiness. And they took pride in how separate they were from sinners. Because they believed themselves to be not sinners. But everyone else was. And other people were unclean, but these holy men were clean, and these holy men were righteous, and these holy men were God's favorites. They didn't hang around bad people. They didn't have anything to do with prostitutes or drunkards or thieves or tax collectors or fishermen. These people were way beneath the holy religious men in the days of Jesus. But Jesus was found with these people. Jesus was found eating with sinners. Jesus even incorporated into his ministry fishermen and tax collectors. And so these religious leaders would come as the crowds were all around and they would hurl these accusations at Jesus as though to somehow shame him 
or embarrass him or mock him. You are the friend of sinners. The friend of tax collectors and gluttons. You're a wine member. And Jesus would take these comments, not as accusations of insult, but as statements of truth, definitively true, that these are the very ones that he came for. And he would say things back to these guys and saying, it is not those that are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. And Jesus would corral the sinners around him. As a matter of fact, Luke chapter 15 gives a testimony of this. There was a moment in Jesus' life when the, when the sinners and the publicans and the tax collectors all began to gather around Jesus just in number and number and number. And the Pharisees and Sadducees, they kind of stood back and they pointed at this, insinuating there's no way that Jesus could be holy and have these kinds of people around his life. And so they point at Jesus and they say, look how he feeds himself with these sinners. And Jesus said, knowing what they're thinking, I have something to say to you. And he said, what man having a hundred sheep, if he were to lose one, would not corral the ninety-nine? And then he would go throughout his area and he would search all over until he found the one lost sheep. And when he had found the one lost sheep, he would carry it back home and he would rejoice and he would call his family and his servants and he would say, come and rejoice with me for my lamb that was lost has been restored to me. Or what woman having lost a a coin that was very valuable would not call her neighbors and say, please come and help me find my coin. And she would sweep her house out and look everywhere in an effort to try to find it. And after she found it, she would call her friends and celebrate because what was dear to her and lost was now found. And Jesus, to drive the point home as clearly as he could, and oh, trust me, every Sadducee and Pharisee knew exactly what he was talking about when he told this story. How many fathers having two sons and one comes to his father demanding his inheritance and his rights so that he could rebel against the family and the family name and go live the life that he wants to live, a life that will bring embarrassment and shame upon the father and his family. And the father distributes to him his inheritance and the son goes out into a far land and he uses up all of his wealth and everything that he had been given by his father and the famine strikes the land and the son can do nothing but take care of the hogs And he begins to even find appetizing the husk that would be fed to the hogs until he finally comes to his right mind. And he understands that I will go back to my father and I will ask my father for his forgiveness. For I've sinned against heaven and against my father. And perhaps my father will receive me again and I could be treated like one of my father's servants because I am so unworthy to be back in the house as a son. But Just to be a servant of my father, he was so good and kind to everyone. And I would be happy to be able to live in that type of state. And so the son begins his journey back to the father. And when the father sees the son a long way off, 
The father jumps from his house, runs to his son, throws himself around his son as his son is confessing his sin. The father can't wait for him to finish. He interrupts him. He says, bring me the ring, bring me the shoes, bring me the robe. My son who was dead is alive. My son who was lost is saved. Oh, he's come back to me. And you Pharisees, you say you work for me. You labor in my fields. You do everything you think the Father wants done right and correct. Everything that I have, I would have given to you. But you never asked me. You don't know the Father. But this son has come home and I've celebrated his return. And Jesus was referring to those that were sinners and prostitutes and drunkards and tax collectors and people that were considered unholy and vile and dirty and distorted. And Jesus was telling those Pharisees, you better believe that I love them. You better believe I'm not ashamed of them. You better believe that I want them. To, and I tell you sinners and prostitutes and wine bibbers and everything, you will enter heaven before these Pharisees will. Wow, what a statement. They were trying to embarrass him. And he capitalizes on that by declaring how much he loves sinners. How much he loves us. Oh, that we would worship this Jesus the way that he deserves. Oh, that we would worship a father. The moment you fell under conviction and you began to turn to God. He was already running after you. You could feel the passion in him. You could feel the hope surging through you. That doesn't look like a run of wrath or a run of anger or a run of destruction. I think he's excited that I'm coming to him. Oh God, I come. Oh Lamb of God, I come just as I am. And God throws himself upon you and redeems you and rescues you. What a friend is Jesus. The Bible calls us transgressors and sinners and enemies of God. We are made from the dust. We are worms and fleas and vapors of life. We are vile and filthy and sinful and unclean and ungodly fools and madmen is what the Bible calls us. But Jesus calls us brothers. Oh, praise God. Beloved, I say this to you, we are safe if we are his. We're safe if we're his. Because the very thing that we sometimes fear so much will keep us from God is the one thing Jesus came to deliver us from so that nothing could separate us from God. Nothing. In Ephesians chapter 1, I want you to just read this with me for just a moment. I kind of want to skim through some of these things that testify of the Father and the Son and the Spirit and the grace that they have shown to us. And I, I just, I, I pray that this would be something that would mean something to you because it's, it's truly beautiful. Of all the mess that we've made of our lives, of all the fear that we've lived in, of all of our unfriendly ways and our unfriendly disposition, our, our inability to love God, our inability to love one another, what is our hope? What is our hope? That we will ever make ourselves something worthy in God's sight? That we will ever arrive? We'll get to this maturity one day that God will be happy with us? The hope of God is the work of God that is to take place in you. God does not put his hope in you. He has put his hope in his son. And he has put his hope in what his son is able to do with your life. 
And if you will yield yourselves to the grace of God, you will find this work taking place in you. Listen to these beautiful things. And I'm not going to read all of the verses. I'm just going to highlight portions of it. But in verse 3, it says that we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Paul didn't say, I am. He said, we are. How many of you believe that? Come on, you're a son. You're a daughter. This is your father. This is your house. I remember my kids were living in my house. My daughter would call me up. Dad, we don't have milk. Pick some up on the way home. I mean, it's just like you're the dad. It's what you do, you know. And and she fully expected that. I, I And I did it. Because my family needed milk and I wanted milk too. So I did it. But it's but it, but it's like there's there's just you're my dad. Who else am I going to call to take care of this? And it was it was a delight to do that. Verse four says he has chosen us in him. He did this before the foundation of the world. He didn't do it when you were turning your life around. He didn't do it when you were realizing, oh my gosh, I'm such a sinner. I need to do better. Oh, okay, well then I'm going to choose you. No, before the foundation of the world, I've already chosen you in my son. This is not Calvinism. This is, this is everyone can come who will come. It was before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Isn't that great? Before the foundation of the world, God knew we were going to sin. He sent his son even before the foundation of the world. In the plan of God, his son was offered as the lamb of God so that we could go to God as sons and daughters, holy and without blame. We owe this to our brother, Jesus Christ. And then the Bible says this in verse 5, we are adopted as children and this is the good pleasure of his will. It's not like God says, oh, I pity them so much. They just need help. Poor little puppy on the side of the road. No, it, it is his good pleasure. I want to make you mine. I, I really love you. I mean, it's so hard for us to imagine. But God really loves you. I mean, he feels it. He's passionate. He's not like us. He's not like, he doesn't love you like you love him. He feels it. He's passionate about it. He's good with us. And he says to the praise of the glory of his grace. Isn't that wonderful? To the praise of the glory of his grace. Some people say, well, you praise grace too much. Well, praise God, Paul did. And the Holy Spirit did because he told Paul what to write. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. He made us that. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. How rich is his grace? He says in verse 11, in whom also we have obtained, that's a gift, you don't attain it. It's it's a gift given, we have obtained an inheritance. So I just want to jump to chapter 2, verse 7, and I want you to see this. We have been saved. We were disobedient. We were children of wrath. We were lost. We were living in our flesh. We lived in the lust of our flesh. We were children of wrath. We hated God. We were God's enemies. We despised him. We nailed him to a cross when he came. But does it stop the love of God? No, it hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. It is patient. Aren't you glad his love is like that? Because the moment you cross, crucify me, I'm done with you. But not Jesus. I'm going to rise again the third day and I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. And he's going to go into the world and bring me many sons and daughters. 
And the very ones that crucified me are going to be in heaven with me, around my throne, worshiping me and ruling and reigning with me. How is that going to happen? I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Praise God. And he says, and so in the salvation that we have through Jesus, it says in verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Why does God want to have sons and daughters? Because he doesn't want to have slaves. He wants to have children. And he doesn't want to have servants who just do his command. He wants to have sons and daughters that he can have relationship with. As a matter of fact, God even calls us a bride. Why does God want to have a bride? What is one of the great purposes of eternity? If God wants to show to us the immeasurable riches of his kindness and his grace, and if it's immeasurable, then we're going to need eternity for God to give an expression of immeasurable riches of kindness and grace to us. And that's why God wants a bride. And that's why God wants sons and daughters. Because I want to spend the rest of eternity lavishing you with my goodness, my kindness, and my grace. I want to love you ferociously. I want to love you intimately. I'm going to give you everything I've got and I never run out of anything that I have. And so for all of eternity, this is yours. Wonderful, wonderful. I read something by Robert McSheen. And it said this, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room. I would not fear a million enemies. If you could hear him praying for you right now, you wouldn't fear. Yet the distance makes no difference. Jesus is praying for me. What a, what a thought. What a knowledge. But let me say this to you. I think this is beautiful. There's a proverb that says that a brother is born for adversity. And Jesus is a brother. And he was born for our adversity. To face our enemies. Our battles. Our fears. Death. The devil. He was born for that. But the Bible says as well. There is a friend. Who sticks closer than a brother. And if a brother is born for adversity. And there is this friend who sticks closer than that. Then as far as I'm concerned, Jesus has to be that friend. And he is that friend to me. I looked up the word sticks closer than a brother. And I love it. Because a lot of you probably do not like clingy friends. And even as Christians, you probably don't like a clingy Jesus. I mean, if you really think about it. Just look at our prayer life. Look at our worship life. Look at our serving life. Most of us want a Jesus when I'm in trouble. I want to call up that brother. Hey, I'm getting bullied at school. And this is when they usually do it after the fifth hour, right before the sixth hour. 
So if you could meet me at the hall when they come this time and just let them know you're my brother, I would really appreciate it. And hopefully that'll take care of it. And I'll see you at the house tonight. Hey, Jesus, I got this problem going on. I got a headache. I've got this. I got a problem. There's a problem at work. There's inflation. I don't know if you've noticed the gas prices rising, Jesus. I need a little help here, brother. Can you help me out? Can you lend a hand? And, and that's the kind of Jesus we want when we're in trouble. David wanted a clingy Jesus, a clingy God. Paul wanted a clingy Jesus. And I suggest to you this morning that you would allow Jesus to be the friend that sticks closer than a brother to you. Let him be the clingy Jesus. That just simply means he sticks with you. You're not going to get rid of him. He's not going to turn away from you. He's not going to abandon you. He's not going to fail you. He's not going to toss you aside. It doesn't matter what you face, what you go through, what darkness it is, what battle you have to go through. Jesus Christ is a friend that's going to cling to you in the midst of that, through that, till you're over that. And then he's going to be there to celebrate that with you. And you should want this Jesus to be your friend. Because in that same proverb, it says, if a man wants friends, he needs to show himself friendly. Some of us have faces that have a sign, beware of the dog. It's like, that's about it, you know. Just beware of that. And we have a face like that toward God. But we need to have a face and a disposition that is kind to God and that addresses him as such and declares to him, I want you to be my friend who sticks closer than a brother. You are my brother that's born for adversity, but I need you to be my friend that sticks closer than that brother. And I'm assuring you that Jesus Christ is that friend. He's not a friend like you. He's not a friend like your friends are. He's not a friend like me. He is superior to any of that and to all of that. Jesus Christ surpassing it all. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah, it describes the clinginess of your friend. And it says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. Not only did he come to fight back your enemies, he clung to you so that he could be in his poverty, make you rich. He could remove your ugliness and put upon you his beauty. He could take away your sackcloth and ashes and put upon you garments of praise. He could remove your death and give you life. He could remove your wrath and give you righteousness. And he could take away and remove from all remembrance your rebellion and justify you before God. No, he stuck with you. He stuck with us when we were crucifying him. He stuck with us this past weekend when we didn't want to do what he wanted us to do. When we turned the other way, went about our own lust, there was Jesus Christ, the clingy friend who said, I bore it for you so that you could be righteous. I'm walking with you so you can be holy. You are the work of my grace and I'm going to take eternity to lavish you with my kindness and my goodness. I'm telling you, Jesus is a friend that knows no limit. And don't you put a limit on him by your own limits. Because many of you have already said, I've gone too far for God. There's no way. And a friend is a friend because they like you. We understand, you know, people say, I love you. You got to love me because I'm a Christian and I love you. But to be able to say, I like you, you know, and that, I hear Christians say that often. I love them, but I don't really like them. Well, I want you to know God loves you and he likes you. That's what a friend means. You don't have friends in your life you don't like. Jesus won't have friends in his life he don't like. He doesn't like the devil. He doesn't like death. 
He doesn't like rebellion. And those are not his friends. Those are his enemies. But he never called that to us. He likes you. He likes humanity. He likes sinners. He likes prostitutes. He likes publicans. He likes tax collectors. He likes the drunkards. He loves the murderers. He loves the thieves. He specializes in them. He's not ashamed to call them brothers. And he wants to take them into his house and say, Father, look what I've done with them. I've changed them. I've saved them. I've delivered them. I've made them holy. And why can't we worship him? Why why don't we worship him more than we do? Why don't we go outside the camp? Why don't we go outside the camp and bear his reproach and say, I'm a clingy friend too. And when you hate him, I love him. And when you mock him, I praise him. And when you're ashamed of him, I'm not. And when you're embarrassed of Jesus, I'm excited about Jesus. And when you want me to keep quiet about Jesus, I'm going to declare Jesus. Because I'm a clingy friend to him. Oh, that the church, the church would be that friend that sticks closer than a brother to Jesus. And you're the church. Are you that friend? Would to God we would be. Would to God we would be. What a friend I have in Jesus. Do you? How wonderful is he? You're, you're so inoculated to the gospel. It's just, I look at your faces and it's like, you're so inoculated to the gospel. If I was hearing this for the first time as a wretched sinner, I think I'd be on my face. I'm, I'm the same way as you. I'd just be on my face before God. This is too good to be true. Well, you grow up in it in church. You hear this all, you're like, oh yeah, Jesus is my friend. We probably won't talk to him till Wednesday. Maybe we'll say the blessing over our food. No, I don't want to treat Jesus like that. I want to restore my worship of God. I want to restore my worship and I want to begin to give Jesus the honor and the preeminence in my life that he deserves. I want to be a clingy friend to Jesus. I want to be a friend born for adversity because I'm his brother. And a brother is born for adversity. And if this world hates Jesus, then go tell the world me and Jesus are going to do something about it. I think somebody said to Luther, you know, the whole world's against you. Luther said, go tell the whole world I'm against them. Jesus said, you're for me or you're against me. I just want the Holy Spirit. Listen, I'm not asking you to make yourself that friend. We're all unfaithful friends. We're not promise keepers. We're promise breakers. And only by the grace of God do we have any hope in life. So I'm not asking you, hey, would you change your life and measure yourself up? And would you begin to be the friend of Jesus now? And would you get into pray? And you have to set an alarm clock now to wake you up and you pray and all of this stuff. I'm not asking you so much to get into that rigor of discipline if there's no faith in it. It's great if there's faith in it. But what I'm asking you to do is could you pray that Jesus, you love me so much. That you are my brother and you're not ashamed of me. You are my friend and you're clingy to me because you really like me and you love me. And you made me your son and you make me your friend. And you've given me this wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit. And maybe you're sitting there saying, I don't know if I'm filled or not filled with the Holy Spirit. How can you be a friend to Jesus without the Holy Spirit? And maybe you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've even been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Maybe you can even speak in tongues, but you're so dry. The Holy Spirit is your ability. And that's wonderful news to me. Because if my friendship to Jesus depended upon my performance, I will be a lousy friend. 
But if I can ask the Holy Spirit, would you make me a friend? And would you let me live as a brother to Jesus Christ in this world that hates him? Then I have hope that the Holy Spirit, by grace, will begin to work in my life. And I can know Jesus more than I've ever known him. And I can be closer to him than I've ever been to him. And I can be free of all this religious stuff. And I can just enjoy a dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ. He wants that with you. I pray that you would give that to him. I pray you'd let it affect you. And that Jesus would be given the preeminence of worship in your life that he deserves. And the world could begin to have hope. Because the church has given it to them. I want you to stand with me. I just want you, if you will, to lift your hands up to Jesus and just begin to love him. His love is everlasting and kind and good and benevolent. Just begin to love him. I want to say something to you. And before we move around, please listen to me. I know that there's religious minds in here that would begin to think and evaluate things and say, well, you know, I'm not a good friend. I've been a bad friend and things have to get right in my life and I have to change and I have to do all of this before I can be a friend of God. Let me remind you of a very real incident that Jesus had with one of his churches. It was the church of Laodicea. It's his church. It's his people. And they have pushed Jesus out. And he's knocking to get in. And he says of these believers, You are wretched. You are pitiful. You are naked. You are poor. And you are blind. And I'm knocking at your door. And if you'll open that door, you know what I'll do? I'll come and fellowship with you. Wow. Wretched, pitiful, poor, naked, and blind. But if you'll just open that door, I will come in and I will not beat you, throw you around, and curse you, but I'll eat with you. I'll restore fellowship with you. And beloved, I say that to you this morning because maybe you feel far from Jesus and your life has just been pitiful and wretched. You're a Christian and you have a wretched life. You feel like you're naked. You're poor. You've got nothing to show for your life. Jesus is saying, please, please open the door. Let me come in. And I'll eat with you. I'll fellowship with you and I'll give you wealth and riches. Let him do that for you. Would you just come and worship the Lord with us? Would you just come and gather around him like Jesus said in the midst of the church? I'll sing your praises. Just want to act like Jesus. I want Jesus to live in me as Jesus. Just let him be your friend. Let him be your